Hey, Intelligence Squared listeners, producer Faye Adabita here. I just wanted to let you know about our first Intelligence Squared collection, Black History and Culture. We're revisiting some of our favorite live events and podcasts from the past 20 years, showcasing great creators and thinkers, including the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, Alicia Garza, poet and activist, Benjamin Zephaniah, and playwright, novelist, critic, and broadcaster, Bonnie Greer. We also delve into debates such as should the West pay reparations for slavery and hip hop versus Shakespeare. Just search Intelligence Squared, Black History and Culture, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. This week, we're talking to historian Olivette Otele about her book, African Europeans and Untold History. Olivette is professor of the history of slavery at Bristol University, vice president of the Royal Historical Society and chair of Bristol's Race Equality Commission. The episode was recorded back in October 2020, and we're releasing it now as part of Black History Month here in the UK. But now let's go to the episode with host Kavita Puri. Olivette, tell me why it matters so much to document these stories. It matters because this is part of our humanity. Our it's, it's part of European history, part of African history, part of the world history. And very much in favor of full disclosure of any kind of stories, whether they're disturbing or not. I'm in favor of exchanging stories and sharing what connects us and, and, and sometimes as well what divides us. So it's, these stories are very important for us. Do you feel that it, with Black Lives Matter and following the protest after George Floyd earlier this year, that, that the telling of these stories and the hearing of these stories has never been more urgent? Well, if you look at from from that point of view, from our moment, these stories are very important. They're incredibly urgent. It's, you know, urgent to be shared. But the truth is these stories have been shared in various communities. It means that the story of black people, people of African descent, has been shared by many in, in various places. So it's now about, it's a, a moment of reckoning. The fact that in 20, in 21st century, 2020, we're still grappling with the legacies of the past and the impact of racism on our communities. So in that sense, this is incredibly important, a crucial moment as well of collaborations, because we, we talk about racism and the damages and the, and, you know, the awful legacy inequalities and all that. But there is something else that is happening. It's the fact that, you know, young people from across the globe and young people in Britain, young people in, in regions, in places, in villages, in West Wales, for example, are finding connections with that story. I've seen them in Cardiff, for example, demonstrate with other people, even though it's not what they see as their family's history, but they consider it to be their history too. So this is an important moment, yes. Your book begins in Roman times. And what's absolutely fascinating is how notions of race then were, were really not as important as you would think they were. And actually that continued during the Middle Ages. Why is that? Ah, that's interesting. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to start there, because I wanted to show that the notion of race or the prejudice based on color and the color of the skin is relatively new in, in, in so many ways. Because just, just to give you an example, you, you, you see in Roman times, it was about power. It was about education. It was about the ones who master Latin and Greek. It was about somebody who was a leader, who people who were intelligent enough to kind of climb the social ladder. So color was one of the elements, but it, it, you know, the Roman Empire had regions that, that were under the ban of the Roman Empire. In other words, North Africa, which is nowadays, no, what is not nowadays, uh, North Africa. Many places there were part of the Roman Empire. So all these people were basically Romans. So the color of the skin becomes something not completely uh, inappropriate, but something that is just there, you know. So, and it was important for me to see how that connection and those that gaze completely change a few centuries later. So, another example, I think it's 1240, for example, King Frederick, who was the king of Sicily, he had his Lord Chamberlain, who was Johannes de Moor, 
So he had an African who was his, you know, Lord, uh, Lord Chamberlain. So he had in his immediate, in Sicily, the kingdom of Sicily, in his immediate entourage and his um, government, if you would, he had people from different color, of different color. And he also welcomed the Jews and the Arabs and the Turks. So things change as colonial colonial exploitation developed and in particular the transatlantic slave trade and slavery so we see completely that distancing with what was there for centuries and suddenly um, uh, European supremacy in terms of economic if you would economic primacy takes over and changes mentalities and uh, the African becomes the slave and the slave the African at least even the language changes uh, the way people of African descent are referred to. So, yeah, there's, there's, it's a long journey. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the Middle Ages, the other was often a Mus- the Muslims or or the Jews. It wasn't necessarily denoted on, on colour. And it's interesting. You saw in churches, for example, black saints. That wasn't uncommon, even black Madonnas. Yes, it was very common. I mean, black Madonnas are still here. And today, you know, uh, the... Virgin Mary of Montserrat, Guadalupe, and they're still very much, not venerated, but still very, people are very attached to them. But there's a dislocation and the distancing between those characters that existed in, as you said, in medieval times and now. And the thing that is interesting about the Black Madonnas was that it was interpreted in various ways. So they, some, some people have argued that their color changed over time, and then it's the degradation of the sculpture that gave them the color black. Others are arguing that they've always been painted black, and others are seeing, you know, some of the Madonnas have black hands, so the interpretation, kind of religious interpretation was that, you know, you can be beautiful outside spiritually and, and, and ugly out, um, beautiful inside and ugly outside, hence the black hands, you know, all sort of interpretation, but it was about the power of redemption for the sinner, the power to be both evil and 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 uh, and good. So yes, things changed after that. Did the rise of the transatlantic slave trade necessarily mean that notions of racial superiority surfaced in order to justify the practice? Yes, this is really a crucial. That is why I'm studying that period as um you know, as my main, because it's a period of shift. It's it's a great period of enlightenment, reasoning, and, you know, European kind of idea of self was really shaped by discovery and wealth. But in contrast, the subjugation of people of African descent participated in sedimenting the notion of identity, European identity, and what they see, they saw as Africans, which is interesting because sometimes they would call these people Africans when actually they were Caribbean. They were born in Caribbean. Some of them have never set foot in Africa, but they were called Africans. So a, a separation, a strong separation between who is European and who is not. Even people born in the Caribbean or in West Indies, as it used to be called, who were Europeans were called Creole, meaning native of the place, just to make sure that they're not quite like us, meaning those born in mainland uh, Europe and Britain. So identity played a crucial role in that. Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you think about notions of equality in the Enlightenment period, how, how could you reconcile that with the treatment of people of African descent at that time? How did they justify that to themselves? Oh, they were quite easily justified. Philosophers from Montesquieu, Voltaire, and many others simply stated that, you know, Africans, African captives, Caribbean people were property. And as such, there was a sanctity about property. Property was everything. So respect for property meant that you keep them where they are, which was they were goods and commodities that have been bought. So in terms of their humanities, well, it, it wasn't really in question. For some people, they were not human. They were part of, you know, they were all justifications about scientific racism. They were not really human. They were not part of, um, you know, Manu, monogenic, monotaste. They, they didn't come from Adam and Eve for religious. For others, they were just 
you know, they, they, they came from a different branch of humanity, all sort of justifications, but ultimately it was about the dehumanizing of uh, people of African descent to make sure that, you know, people will, wouldn't see them too much as, as victims, but rather as tools, necessary tools for, for European hegemony. As, you know, even some planters had problems with that in terms of they, they knew that these people were people. But many of them argue that this is the price to pay for our well-being and our wealth and to, to be able to, to reach certain wealth, to, to have access to, um, to discoveries, to, to traveling and all sort of things. So there was a reason why this should be done. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. I was really shocked to read about the police de noir in, in France. I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that. I think it's it's it kind of it's quite interesting for you to explain that because I think that reveals quite a lot about attitudes of that time. Yes. So in 1776, France decided that they needed to contain the the flow of black bodies arriving in Europe. But France was one example. It was really across across Europe, the Netherlands, Denmark, and so on. So they needed to restrain because there were too many of them. Actually, there weren't too many of them, but, you know, there was the perception that too many of them, black bodies needed to stay in environments where they were made to work, not just pollute. That was the term used, pollute European air and, and, and streets. So what happened is France set up the police des Noirs. La police des Noirs is the police for black people, which meant that pe- black people had to register. And ultimately, it was about sending them when they could, sending them to the Caribbean. But these people, some of them were free men and women, so they were allowed to stay, but they had to register. So it's creating a category of humans that is there to to reassure the population. But the problem was that planters who would visit, you know, uh, the country would bring with them their enslaved people and their enslaved people were servants. So they arrive at a ridiculous position where they had to leave them at ports and, and they, and these, these black people were parked in, into warehouses, which looked like camps or prisons. But planters were not happy because some of them, let's say women, some of them were wet nurses. So there was a situation where they couldn't use their enslaved as they saw fit just to reassure the, the population in mainland France. Ultimately, I wanted to talk about this really because for me it was really important at the time we're talking about policing and black bodies and the death of uh, George Floyd. I wanted to show that in Europe, this is a long tradition of policing black bodies and it didn't start even during the civil rights, it started long, long before, centuries before. It just turned into different, it had different faces and different laws were passed. But it is a long tradition. And yet, during that period, you do have people 
of part Africa descent who who do who do thrive and rise like Joseph Boulogne. Maybe you should speak a little bit about him. He's an interesting character. He is. Joseph Boulogne was an exceptional character. He's not. He wasn't representative of most black people in that environment in the sense that he was of dual heritage. So he was born in Guadeloupe in the Caribbean, and his father was a nobleman, and his mother was a, a, a Senegalese. So he was enslaved, the mother was enslaved, and the father quite unusually took not just the child, but also the mother, and brought them to Paris. And he wanted his son to have the best education the realm could offer. So he had, and he had the means for that. So he became a master fencer. He became a, a musician, a very talented and recognized uh, musician. He was educated and all doors were open to him, not just because he was wealthy, but he was incredibly talented. And of course, uh, as well a charmer, it's, it appears to be. So you have the king's brother, the Duke of Orléans, his wife who opened the door to him and even the, the the brother the king's brother himself introduced joseph to freemasonry so he he's supposed to have been one of the first if not the first freemason black freemason in france a lot of things happened to him he came to london he enjoyed the high society but then uh, the revolution arrived and strangely enough he decided that he needed to go on the, to, to be on the side of the revolutionary. He was a nobleman, so he could have just, you know, enjoyed and move away. No, he wanted to be part of change because he saw that this is, this was the way for people of African, African descent and dual heritage to have more rights. But it didn't go according to plan because he was in prison. And after, when he came out of prison, he resumed his post as the director of the opera. The problem was that by that time, the mentalities had changed. France had reestablished slavery because it abolished it in 1794. So reestablishing slavery and eventually Joseph died, but it didn't stop there. The tragic part was that his story was forgotten and Napoleon made sure that his work was erased from all repertoire. So his music was never played, never taught, but he was not forgotten. People of African descent, Caribbean, they always remembered him because he was an outstanding musician. So they campaigned for nearly a century for him to be reinstated. So in, in um, 2014, I believe, President uh, François Hollande at the time reinstated him and there was a moving celebration of his, um, his music uh, on the day of the commemoration of the, of the abolition of, of slavehood and, and slavery in, in France, which is uh, the 10th of May every year. So it was a very solemn ceremony very moving and it was very hard not to cry because <laughs> it's beautiful music yeah it's one of the things i really enjoyed about your book is how you tell the story of the characters at the time but you also show how their memory plays out and how they're remembered at the time of their death is not how they're remembered in the next 50 years or the next 100 years or the next 200 years and actually the way they're remembered tells you so much about the particular time that you're living in Siki was yet another example the boxer that Muhammad Ali then then remembered and that these stories have been you know they've been remembered by people of African descent and they've they've held these stories and they've they've carried them with them but I we've talked a little bit about about slavery but I wanted to talk about colonialization and and how did notions of racial superiority how were they used or were they modified in order to justify european presence in in africa or other countries well that's interesting it completely changes as well so you see you start with people of african descent being transported across the ocean from the atlantic to the indian ocean to the Pacific, reaching, of course, uh, regions such as, well, what, what would be nowadays Pakistan um, and um, Sri Lanka or up north in the Middle East, Iran and places like that, as well as the Atlantic, all this was happening at the same time. So you have this idea of chattel slavery, people being transported to work in plantations and to have their descendants being slaves, meaning that chattel slavery basically means that their descendants would be slave forever. 
And then you have the abolition of the slave trade and slavery, but it didn't stop there. So as you have the abolition of, of, this, of the slave trade in 1807 and slavery 1833, you also have those who abolished the slave trade or those who campaigned for that going to Africa uh, for what they called, you know, <laughs> on a mission to try and convert those populations to Catholicism. But this is also the time when Britain, France, and others were chasing rubber. So colonization was always about economic consideration. So chasing rubber meant acquiring territories. It meant fighting against each other to, to get hold of those territories. So in that context, people of African descent were not enslaved, but it was the time of forced labor. The difference is that the populations were coerced into working for Europeans Coercion took many forms, you know, it could be armed coercion, it could be, you know, your family's in danger, so you have to work for that, for, for those missionaries and so on and so forth. But what is interesting always for me is to bear in mind that slavery might have stopped, but that subjugation continued even after colonization. We do know that independence did not necessarily lead to to freedom, but that's a long history. It's a century later, but it, you know, it, it hasn't stopped in many ways. You, you talked about the police, but you also document the concept of, of black internationalism as early as the 18th century. Is that where you see black activism starting or does it start earlier than that? Uh, for me, it definitely starts earlier. I, you know, one of the things that I find interesting is that we talk about black at activism during the civil rights movement, and then we talk about it now. But that story of black resistance has started so long before, resistance to enslavement, but even before that, you know, in 145-ish, I believe, there was several African Europeans, Romans, Cornelius Fronto, for one, was an educator and a writer who was the um, tutor to two emperors, uh, Roman emperors, highly educated, born in North Africa, and who made a huge impression on, on European uh, elite and education. And that man was at the center of a whole network of African Europeans based in Seville, Lisbon, and so on and so forth. So black internationalism started long before. So it wasn't about oppression as such, but it was about intellectual connections. They acknowledged that there was something to do with the color of the skin and the place of birth that shaped identity. And if necessary, support was there. It goes on then to the confraternities in Lisbon, uh, in the 15th century, and it goes on slavery plantation, and it goes on abolition, and it goes on. So it's not at all a new phenomenon. And in terms of the kind of acts of resistance to slavery, uh, is that well documented or not really? Oh, it is very well documented. It's one of the most interesting, well-documented periods because you have colleagues from the Caribbean, Caribbean scholars, um, I'm thinking about Professor Vreni Shepard. She talks about, not just her, but many others, she talks about the forms of resistance. You know, there's open rebellion, the ones that we know, but resistance took many forms, from poisoning the master to dragging feet to do stuff, to taking refuge in the mountains as maroon communities, to simply using the uh, the current situation, for example, dual heritage women having children with a master, but trying to negotiate their, the freedom of their children and their families on the side at the same time. So many forms. You you paint such a vivid and nuanced picture in your book of the experience of African Europeans in many many different countries that is based upon you know the specific history of you know, for Afro-Russians or Afro-Swedes. But you also talk about people of dual heritage. And the story that really struck me was that of, of Theodore Michael and how he was absolutely caught between two cultures, um, his African culture and his German culture. And at a particular moment in, 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 in European history, and how he has been, and, and, and the way he has been remembered subsequently is also quite interesting. I think you should tell us a little bit about his story. I think, I think it's probably a story that left its mark on you because it, it is very memorable. 
It is very memorable. It's a long history, and we have a detailed account of his story because he he put it in writing. So he was born in 1925 and died in 2019 during Black History Month. I remember the 19th of October. And an extraordinary life. So other African Europeans enjoyed a certain certain privileges because they belonged to um, to the elite of Europe, if you would. Theodore had none of it. He was born from a Cameroonian father and a, a, a German mother who was poor. And the father came from Cameroon, and Cameroon at the time was a, a German protectorate, which meant that it was a semi kind of, it wasn't even independent. It was just one of the many <laughs> colonies where, where, you know, the legal status of several colonies. So anyway, Germany falls after the First World War. And you have many Cameroonians staying in Germany, stuck basically in Germany, not allowed to go back because if they go back, they will never set foot in Germany. And Theodore is born there. And by the time he's born, well, he becomes stateless. He becomes stateless because the German, the German government decided that when he's about, I think, 10 or 10 or 12, the German state decided that the Jews will become nationals. German nationals, not German citizens. And those, the children of those who are from the protectorate will become stateless. So he becomes stateless in his own country. And his father died. His mother had died before. And he, he will spend his life and the life and his uh, siblings working for circus, working for television, playing savages in, in movies, in German movies. Uh, when he's 14, he, it's 1940. The war is coming and Hitler uh, has taken power, controlling everything. So they decided that in order to work, you have to have membership, a labor membership, a specific labor membership. And Theodore can't apply. Well, he tried, he applies, but actually he's told that he's not successful. And it's very clear he's not successful because if I remember the quote correctly, your Negroid features are too alien for our kind. So... This is completely, it's not a shock, but it's terrifying for this child because he is German. He feels German. He, Germany is all he's known. So he lives with foster parents who are not particularly, who are horrible, basically, who make him work. So at 14, he's working illegally and he himself is an illegal, stateless. And, and what is interesting about, about this is the fact that he nonetheless is convinced that there's there's more to life than this. So he's going to fight all, all his life to try and prove that, you know, he had no education, you know, barely could barely read and write, but he's going to learn all this throughout his life, become, start to work for, okay, so after, I'm forgetting stuff. So after the, the war, during the war, he's, he's, he's in contact with other Africans because they're all, put to work in factories for the war effort in Germany. He doesn't connect with them because he doesn't speak any language. And as a dual heritage, they see him as a pot, potentially a, a spy. The white population see him as an aberration. So eventually he, he'll find his way and educate through education, through a strong belief that, as I said, there's more to life than this. He is incredibly, incredibly resilient the kindness of the man is immense. The ability to forgive as well is immense. And one of the, the episodes that stuck with me was the fact that he is at some point welcome in the home of somebody who was an executioner in a camp and who's probably suffering from PTSD. And he, he just observed saying that, you know, Germany, Nazi Germany has done a number on, 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 on all, all people not just the Jews, but on those who were executioners. It doesn't mean that he excuses them. He's just saying as it is what he sees. After the war, he, life is not better, simply because the Americans come, the Russian comes, and he's not seen as, they consider him to be German, even though he's stateless, so they can't, he can't immigrate in the States. So he's stuck in Germany. He continues to work and founds, fell in love, have lots of children, suffer from bad health. But towards the end, even goes back to, to Cameroon, where he realized that this is really not my country either. So he comes back to Germany and he's determined to 
to foster what he sees as a community of, of people like him, of people of African descent. He really is very much into collaborations and, and making the lives better for everyone. It's an extraordinary story, extraordinary man, really. Your, your book is African Europeans, but it really is a book about male African Europeans. How, how hard was it for you to find those female voices? I noticed they're mostly in the, in the 20th century and, um, and, and how do you feel about their absence in your book? Well, I started to, I wanted to write a book about women. So I feel, <laughs> I feel, I felt incredibly frustrated. I felt it was difficult for me to find, for example, uh, black African Romans, for example, female African Romans. I didn't find any. So, but I did talk about, for example, the Queen of Sheba, who lived in nowadays Yemen. I talked about women as symbolic as they were. I talked about women in medicine, how they were perceived, you know, in the 12th century, how black women were examined as beasts of burden and, and all sort of, of things. So it was very hard. But I decided also to shift the, the, the narrative around because what I see as women contribution has been throughout and it's underlined, it's behind this from Joseph Boulogne's mother, who's barely present, to the Nardal sister in the 20th century, who shaped the intellectual life in Paris in between the walls, to the younger generations of women, powerful, incredibly inspiring women, Af Afro-feminist in France and uh, women in Britain, black British women in Britain. So there are there. They're not flamboyant. They do the work in the background. They support this edifice of black internationalism and black activism. They are the core of, of what this book is about. You, you quote the scholar Marianne Hirsch, who talks of racism as, as an intergenerational process and it, it's transmitted as a legacy of the past. Do you think that that is still the case today? And, and if it is, do you think it will end? Will it end? Uh, before I answer, I just wanted to clarify something. Marianne Hirsch talks about memory and trauma as, as intergenerational as what he, she called post-memory. It's me then who transformed this idea of post-memory into generational into racism being intergenerational because it is. Because the legacies of the past impact families throughout generations, and we have seen that. I have seen that in my in my work. And it seems terrible. It seems that trauma follows follow us, the colonized, throughout and for centuries. And it's it's dire. But I I want to talk. I wanted to talk about this because it's a reality. Mental health within the black community is something that is not necessarily talked a lot. But mental health, you know, the number of black men in particular that you found in mental institutions is huge, almost comparable as the number of people you black men you find in, in, in the, um, in prison for different reasons completely. But, you know, it is linked. There's the idea of trauma. But I also wanted to talk about this because it's not just dire. Let's remember that African Americans pain is one, what that prompted them into action. It is that pain of sense of urgency, the legacies of enslavement have prompted them into shaping their identity and, and turning this into a tool to fight against oppression as a group. And I want, I want people as well to understand that trauma shape identities, but trauma, that trauma is a vehicle for good. That trauma is the reason why you saw so many people on the streets after George Floyd was, was, was killed. So, you know, yeah. Well, you know better than anyone else, Olivette, that the, the debate over history is now so polarised. Do, do you think that, that stories like the ones that you have talked about in your book, do you think an understanding of that, an understanding of this long history that you, you speak of would help dismantle racial prejudices today in Europe? I'm an optimist. So I hope so. That's very much the, the, the project and the idea behind, behind this book is to show that there's a long history of resistance and there is a very long history of collaborations. There's a long history of tolerance and there's a very long history of love. 
as much as there is a history of oppression, of course. So people have done it before. And if there are still communities that are still fighting alongside minority ethnic groups, it is because, you know, somewhere, somehow, some principles about the humanities, uh, our, our common humanities is, uh, have remained prevalent. And yes, the debate is polarized, but I also think that there's a political will to polarize the debate. I believe, I always believe that history is political. So um, this is what's happening. Seeing that history allows perhaps people to see that there's more to this than just the fight against each other. I mean, the stories you've chosen are inspiring, but there must have been African Europeans, of course, that did bad things to other yes. African Europeans. I don't recall reading about those in the book. Did you? Did you? Oh, yes. Go on. Okay, so there's this guy that is very well known, Septimus Severus. Septimus Severus is a Roman emperor, and he wasn't nice. I mean, he was a conqueror. He was ruthless. He's the one who led the campaign to Britannia. He's the one who took over and died in York. And like most Roman emperor, he was horrible. And he was a particularly bad father because he allowed his son to kind of live a life of debauchery, but more importantly, allowed his sons to come between his best friend and himself. In other words, his skills as a leader were not translated into the family realm. There's another one, the Duke of Medici, Lorenzo. He's, he's said to have been somebody who's pursuing women to the extreme. So in today's term, he might have been seen, he may be seen as a sexual predator. So no, there are bad, bad people in there as well. Do you, do you think that the omission of the kind of stories that you were talking about in your book, do you think it's inherently racist to have, have ignored them? Or do you think there is a sense of, shame uh, in European countries in, in acknowledging their role in, as you say, the, you know, in, in, in the transatlantic slave trade and the invention of, of, of racial superiority. I'm just trying to understand why it is that they ha- these stories haven't been told and why they're still not really being recognised in, in, in a more broader way. Well, you know, there's this saying, by, I think it's Wallace Shirinka, but I don't want to misquote him, who says that it's the victor who gets to write the history of the event. In other words, it's the one who won the economic war who gets to write the history. So it's not just enough to win the war. You have to write a narrative that presents you as the leader on, on, on all fronts. And it means selecting what you deem valuable for national unity, what you deem valuable for uh, a sense of identity and, and nationhood. And therefore, these stories are discarded constantly. It's only because of the, um, y- you know, the, the migration movements, the power of these communities and all that, that there's a push, there has been a push for these stories to come out, of course, through collaborations to, to come out and therefore to be shared as we know them now. Me as a black woman in the 21st century, I'm allowed, I have the opportunity to share this story, but somebody in the 18th century in my position would never have had that opportunity. So there's a desire, it's ideological, to select, and, and that's how history works, a selection of what is deemed relevant to the people at the time, which means that the story of victimhood, the story of fame, are discarded. It's a story of victory, isn't it? So there is indeed a question of shame, but that shame is is often translated into other, you know, delusion of, of grandeur, nostalgia of a past that never existed, or the idea that, well, it happened a long time ago, so why are we talking about it now? Because everything's fine now, isn't it? So various ways to actually re- remove the past from our settings. And, and those are the arguments we're hearing now, and history has, has become part of the culture war. And do you see the movement towards decolonizing history, do you see it as part of the culture war? No, decolonizing has always been there. It's called decolonizing now, but decolonizing is basically introducing these stories into what is seen as uh, those stories that are seen as canon, those books that are seen as canon. It's about dismantling a narrative by showing how it's, it's based on erasure and oppression, but it's also about introducing new stories. So decolonizing is called that now, but, uh, you know, the, now that's just in, in between the wars, we're already doing that. 
You argue uh, in your book that fighting racism is a long fight. And you also talk about how racism shifts. Do you see the Black Lives Matter movement as this bigger struggle for justice and recognition that, that began a long time ago? And, and where do you think we're heading now? I think we, we have a tendency to see, to think that history is linear. You fight, you win, things go well or don't. But actually history is back and forth. It's going backwards. It's resistance on the, from the, on the side of the racist as well. It's the backlash that you see now as well as much as uh, the Black Lives Matter. So uh, this is also the way a collective memory is built. It's built on fight and struggle and disagreement. But ultimately, what I hope is that we will find compromises in the way we teach history and the way and not just tolerance, because I think this is our earth, all of us. So it's just learning to live with our differences. I know it sounds quite common to say that, but it's it's the hardest thing, it seems, and it has been for centuries. I'm going to go to questions now. And um, someone is asking, regarding the current polarization of the conversation on race, how do we reach those who are set against learning the history in your book? What would you say to them? I always see, I don't see history as just being learned into books, through books. History can be learned in so many things. I was talking uh, recently to somebody and I was saying that, you know, you can teach history through food, through cloth, through cultural material culture, through sports, through, of course, migration, but also through geography, through maps. So there are many ways to reach people. It's just a case of finding which ones they were, they, they're more interested in. But multi, a multi, multi, um, dimensional approach is, I think it's advisable. How easy was it for you? Somebody asks. It's uh, Jackie from Birmingham. How easy was it for you to do your research? Did you find that some European countries hid their history more than others? <laughs> it was, it's particularly hard when it comes to, when it came to Spain and Portugal, because the conversation is not taking place and the conversation is might be taking place now, but that history where in the 19th century, for example, Lisbon, roughly 80% of the population was of African descent. That's a lot. But this is something that Spain, um, Portugal rather, is not very keen to share. And yet scholars have found that. So some countries were harder than others. That's why I didn't particularly focus on on those, and I focus on communities now and one Latino in the 15th century. It's another story to tell, maybe in another book. <laughs> Cameron asks, you talked about the behavior of evangelical Catholics in the 19th century. Do you find from your research that main religions, such as Christianity, Islam, Judaism, were overall a force of, for good or evil in the historic battle against slavery or, or neither? Uh, it's very hard to answer that because it's a balance sheet. I don't see it as good or bad. I just see it as it was. Uh, it, it, we we could say they were a force for good if we look at the results now. But actually, if you look you look at the long history of all religion, you will see that there were moments where there were collaborations between different groups. You know, I told you about Frederick II who was a Christian, but who welcomed the Turks and the Arabs and the Jews. So it's really, and same for the Mamluks in Egypt, who welcomed various people, not always, but sometimes. So I can't say if it's a force for good or bad. I just see not religion, but people as being capable of both, really. I think this is probably quite a, it's a personal question um, about, your knowledge of African history. Is there a bit of African history that you don't know as much about currently, but which you would like to know more about in the future? Yes, I have a very good idea of kingdoms because I work on on, on long history, but I don't necessarily have all the details. Uh, if, if you tell me, if you ask me to tell you the whole story of the kingdom of Oyo, I can't do that. I can tell you about certain kings who interacted with Europeans. So that this is where my knowledge is lacking. Current or contemporary history, I read a lot about it because I'm fascinated by it. So I, I know I know a fair amount, but it's the ancient history that I'm missing the most. 
Chloe asks about um, Colston's statue falling down and you you work in Bristol, so you, you know the story of Colston very, very well um, and it created so much debate, it still does. What, what were your views on that? Did you think it was the right thing to take it down? I think people tend to look at Colston's statue as an example of what's happening elsewhere. Colston's statue was came after a debate that had been lasting for two decades about the place of Colston in the city. He was a child of the city through monuments, but he was not a child of the city. In fact, he left the city long for a long time, and his statue was erected long, nearly a century after he was born. So it's it's a, it's a history of prioritizing certain narrative. Was was I happy? I was surprised, definitely surprised. I wasn't like, yeah, he's fallen down. I was. I kept thinking, what do we do with the artifact? How do we use it to teach? <laughs> and uh, how are we going to do? Are we going to live and let him on the ocean, on the on the river, and then become a monument, underwater monument? That could be interesting. Or you know, I was thinking about that. Rather than, uh, and simply because for me, the statue is a debate, but the stark inequality created by somebody like Coulson when he paid for the transportation of mainly children in the Caribbean in, on, the, on the other side of the ocean created stark inequality in the city. And I would like those inequalities and those legacies of the past to be addressed, really. And and to that point, actually, Chloe asks also, how do you strike a balance between preserving and learning about pain and the trauma, which you spoke a little bit about earlier, as well as moving forward to celebrate and include those kind of untold stories? How do you get that balance? It's just, it's not even a balance. There's nothing to be balanced about. I think it's just telling the story as it goes along. This happens, and then that resulted in this, and that resulted in this. The idea, the constant desire to put the spotlight on one or the other is why we have that debate at the moment. Uh, is the desire to try and justify one over the other. It's just telling it as it was. As I said, I'm in favor of full disclosure. This is the only way to move forward. We have another question asking, do you think the history of the abolitionist movement is still important to teach. Of course it is. My my problem with that is that it's the only story that has been taught. So we don't talk about slavery and we don't talk about the compensation money and we just talk about that short period. And that is a problem because it doesn't give us a fuller picture of what it was about. So someone else says, where would you recommend one should start if they know nothing about African history, apart from obviously buying Olivet's book? I would recommend, and this is a fascinating place to start with, is the Library of Timbuktu, the oldest, one of the oldest library in the world. Start there. Oh, this is interesting. Another question. What was the history that informed Shakespeare's creation of Othello as a character? It's African presence in European settings. Because I was, funny enough, I was talking to an Italian woman who says that Othello is taken from Italian settings because some of the first slave traders were Venetians. And those Venetians had, you know, all sort of people. So the character of Othello has been taken from Venice, from uh, not just Venice, but um, from Italian plays and transformed by Shakespeare. This is how the story, as the story goes. So, yes. Is there any evidence to suggest that Shakespeare may have encountered a black person or black people himself? I mean, there's no evidence, but it's not unusual. I mean, Elizabeth I, we remember, we, we know that she wrote to the mayor of London asking him to get rid, to get the city, rid of the city of those moors, as she called them. So there were black presence already there. And, and um, so he, he probably did encounter a black person. Um, we have another question here. What are some particular challenges you face within the academy when focusing on African history? Well, people see me as being biased. You know, a black woman actually started long before when I was doing my PhD. People saying, oh, you're going to talk about black people. It can't be ba- ba- balanced. And it, it continues during my viva because in France, the viva are very public. They last long and you have all sort of questions. So it became a battleground of ideology during my viva which was not pleasant. So the, I'm supposedly, I won't be, uh, I won't be balanced and I will be biased, which is interesting because that is never told about 
Europeans, white Europeans doing the history of Europe. You have another question. Who is your favorite African European and why? Oh, no, don't ask me. <laughs> every time I was writing about every single one of them, I was completely focused and passionate about them. And in fact, it, so much so that some of the characters I had to cut down the word count because it was I was going too much in, deeper into their, their, these characters. So I really can't choose. I really can't choose. <laughs> I just wondered, Olivette, the, the issue of reparations is still a kind of contemporary issue in, in, in America today, but it isn't so much in Europe. Why is that, do you think? It is in Europe, actually, because what's happening is that at the European levels, uh, European countries have decided that they would not be reparations. And they decided that the debate start, you know, really pick up, picked up after uh, slavery was declared a crime against humanity after the conference of the Durban conference in 2001. So there's a consensus between Europeans that they would not pay for reparations. There's, it's an ongoing fight, but the debate is very much there, very much there, debated at the European level, European Commission, and through grassroots organization, and of course in academia. You, you talk about African Europeans, and in your book, it's, the emphasis is very much on the kind of particular experience within the country uh, related to the history. I just wondered what you thought African Europeans have in common. Just like African American, there's a, uh, this, a story of migration, journey, struggle, encounters, resilience or not. Yeah, they have a lot in common, but it's mainly people moving across Europe and traveling. But this is something that, uh, you know, that unites them at some point. This was such an extraordinary year. Do you feel hopeful in terms of the lessons learned in going forward in terms of the move towards racial justice and, and equity and recognizing the kind of stories that you talk about? I am very hopeful. I, I, you know what? I've, I've always been always been. I'm hopeful, but I also acknowledge that kind of racial justice, equality, and um, the coming together might not happen in my lifetime. And that's okay. My job is to build something from which some people can step and, and move on. But I'm convinced that at some point, somehow it will happen. Professor Olivet Atelli, thank you so much for joining us on Intelligence Squared and your wonderful book and to the audience for your very brilliant questions. Thank you.